It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast. Okay, thank you for tuning into the It's Going Down podcast. Uh, we have a very special episode today. Uh, this podcast came out of a conversation that started on This Is America about the opioid crisis. Uh, several people responded to the conversation that we had. And out of that conversation, um, we're now talking to uh, the person that's with us today. Do you just want to introduce yourself real quick? Yeah. Um, my name's Cody. I'm an anarchist. Um, I live in Denver, Colorado. And uh, I work in the field, and I'm also a person that's in recovery. So just to kind of give us a little bit about yourself, um, how did you come to Anarchist Ideas? Well, um, I guess I, like, I came into anarchy, I think, the same way many people do, um, in that I have just found myself angrier and angrier and angrier, um, you know, since, since before Trump was elected, but but cer- certainly um, after uh, after the election and the campaign and everything, it just it, it, my um, my views shifted. I guess my worldview shifted, and um, um, I so my the work that I do and my identity and um, my you know resistance work all sort of connect to one another and. Um, I work in mental health, um, and I'm a person with lived experience and, um, you know, seeing the injustices that, um, that people with, you know, mental, mental health challenges, substance use challenges face, um, is, is, uh, tragic to say the least. So, um, so a lot of my activist work is, is, um, directly connected to the mental health field, um, and sort of the mad activist community, um, anti-Sanist community. And so, yeah, so that's, and, and, uh, um, I guess for me, like when my, when my mental health is not well, um, anarchy and mutual aid and peer support and direct action, that's, that's the kind of stuff that I, that is self-care to me and, um, sort of helps bring me out of like dark spaces. So, um, I found a way to, to, you know, integrate it into my life as, as much and as often as possible. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you've seen this headline, but this was going around about a, a week ago, but this is, this has been on everything from, you know, sites like Vox to Fox news, but Americans are now more likely to die of an opioid overdose than in a car crash, which I think to many people is shocking. Yeah. It's um, that, that doesn't get any easier to, to digest. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm as a person in recovery, I think, you know, sort of part of 
par for the course is losing people. Um, and it seems like we are losing people at just exponential rates. Um, and it's, um, there are places in the world where, where they're doing great substance use work and really, really like having some solid outcomes. And, um, unfortunately the United States, you know, the, the people in power just refuse to, um, adopt any other, any other sort of outlook other than criminalization. And I think it sort of feeds this, you know, it feeds the prison industrial complex and capitalism and, um, anything for that bottom dollar. Right. And people are just dying as a result. It's, and it's, and it's heinous. Right. And we're going to get into that and kind of break that apart and look at all the different aspects to it. But um, you mentioned that you were in, in recovery. I'm just curious if you'd like to kind of share that part of your story, if you would. Yeah. So um, when I was in school, um, almost a decade ago, uh, I, um, you know, I, I got I started doing pills just like many people do. I didn't you know, I didn't come into my addiction via um like injury or surgery or, or things like that. Um, like that many, many, many of my comrades who are in recovery and many people I know who have died, um, like that's how they got started. They were introduced by a physician. I was introduced recreationally and, um, it got out of control really quickly and I overdosed and almost died. And then after that, um, it's just, I, I stopped using that substance. Um, and I've been in, I would say I've been in, in recovery the way I define it for a good five, six years now. Um, but I also, I, I also have, um, a mental health diagnosis, a psychiatric diagnosis, and, um, I manage that every day. So, um, so that's sort of like the space that I, that I come from is having gone through it myself and, um, many, many of my comrades, many of my loved ones are in recovery as well. It's, it's something that um, ha- impacts almost everyone I know in some way or another. Yeah, just just myself. I mean, I feel like uh, the the epidemic I've most been exposed to is is meth, um, just on my own personal circumstance, uh, and in my own general area, it's generally it's been meth and heroin, at least in the. I'm sure now opioids are much more part of the drug landscape, but uh, for those that are kind of unaware or maybe don't have a reference point, uh, how easy is it to overdose on these type of pills? So you build up a tolerance. So part of the problem is you build up a tolerance so quickly. So people who, um, you know, if you're using them every day, you can, you know, you can find yourself using more and more and more very quickly. And the re- and so people turn to heroin because it's cheaper. Um, and, um, and so I would say, you know, it's, it, it's very easy to become addicted. If you are not very diligent about it, it will take anybody. It will, it will take anybody. And, um, and it doesn't discriminate. And so it's like not a moral thing. And I know that um, your listeners, our listeners are, like understanding of that, but it, I just feel like it, 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 it begs to be repeated that it's like, it has nothing to do with a person's will or desire. It's like, you know, pretty, pretty fucking biological. And, um, and the scary thing is that when you stop using for even a short period of time, your tolerance drops. So then if somebody relapses, um, and they assume that their body will require the same amount that they were using before, 
whatever amount of sobriety, overdoses can happen really quickly from that. Um, because you know, your the tolerance just it it goes up very quickly and it drops very quickly. Um, and then if it you know if people are using heroin and it's laced with fentanyl, fentanyl is deadly. Um, so it's very easy to overdose from that. That's a word we hear a lot about right now. Can you kind of break that down for people? When did fentanyl kind of enter into the equation of this crisis and? and you know, what, what, uh, by and large is its role in this? So, um, fentanyl is okay. So an opiate is, um, is, um, anything, uh, that is, a, a derivative of the, um, opium, the poppy plant. So that's morphine and heroin. Um, and I, th- I think Dilaudid, but don't quote me on that. Um, but then you've got your synthetics that do the same thing as these, um, these opiates, but they're, um, made in a lab. So they're, they're synthetically produced and they're, um, what we call opioids. Um, fentanyl is an opioid that is a hundred times stronger than an Oxycontin. Um, and it's, um, it's not something that is made or produced in the United States as much as it's produced in places like China and Mexico. And, um, it's very, very potent and it'll get people very, very high. Um, and it also is extraordinarily lethal. Um, in fact, you know, people who touch it with their, with their fingers even, um, can overdose. And there have been instances of of that. And I recently read that a a drug dog, um, overdosed, um, from making contact with fentanyl and, uh, and they revived it with, um, Narcan. So there's that. So recently on Netflix, there was a interesting it was you know there's a lot of stuff to pick apart in there i don't know if you saw it it was a series called dope it was about uh people that were uh dealing with drug addiction and also the profiles like a lot of like uh law enforcement people and also people that were selling drugs i don't know if you've seen this series i have yeah and did you see the one on i think it was baltimore and they were talking about fentanyl and they were talking about the opioid crisis and the way that they framed it basically was like, you know, essentially these black gangs coming into the white areas, selling it to our kids, and they're dying. It's a crisis. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people looking at the opioid crisis have noticed, obviously, that, you know, for instance, you know, the epidemic with crack cocaine, which was, you know, very much so made a crisis because of the U.S. government you know, selling it in black neighborhoods to fund things like the Contras and stuff like that. You know, the solution to that was lock them up. And then now all of a sudden we have this opioid crisis and, you know, Trump, for instance, you know, one of the things that he talked about in his campaign was that, you know, we've got to like find a solution to this. And there seems to be like an air of trying to find some other way to deal with this other than uh, mass incarceration. I'm just curious, you know, your thoughts on that. Yeah. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I think it's because white kids are dying that now it's it's a public health emergency, um, as as Trump stated or declared. Um, I, I I absolutely believe that um, because um, because of the the way the the drugs the substance was marketed um it you know it was marketed through physicians through your family physician um it was you know they gave it to to everybody everybody 
And if a white coat gives, gives it to you, then you can trust it implicitly is sort of the message where we're fed. And, um, and white kids were, were overdosing on it and, and are overdosing and middle class and upper class white kids. And so, uh, you know, now, um, our, our, you know, our government's response to that is we have to do something about it. Um, because that's the lens that, that, that our government views crisis through is, um, a white family's lens. But specifically like go to the other town and kick the door in and arrest that person or put a wall on the border because that'll somehow stop planes from bringing fentanyl into the United States. Um, which again is a win-win for the state. Oh yeah. Because oh. you know, they get, they get, you know, more of, more of what they like, you know, right. more, Border patrol, more prison guards, more surveillance, more police. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely like, you know, something that that um, it, it's hard to not burn out in this in this work because because of that because the whole system feeds in in like into it and we're all getting sick and we're all dying and it feels very out of out of control. It feels much bigger, at least to me, it feels much much bigger than you know what I'm able to tackle. Um, and I have to, um, consciously just like, you know, remind myself that, that, that we can, we can do this and everything we're doing matters on the ground, boots on the ground, talking to people and interacting with people and reminding folks that they're not alone. And that's what matters. Mm -hmm. And just one more side question, you know, we've had people on this podcast before that have talked about the opioid crisis and they talked about the role of, um, you know, private corporations basically I don't know if the correct word is pushing doctors or uh, giving doctors incentives to basically uh, supply people or give them prescriptions for uh, opioids. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So, um, so the Purdue um, Purdue Pharmaceuticals—they're the ones that put put it together uh, or like create, I guess, produce the drug, and they should absolutely be held accountable for this. Um, but it's not just them. It's the Sackler family as well. They are, you know, one of the richest families in the world. They're the owner of Purdue Pharma and, um, they are loaded. They are loaded off Oxycontin and they, every single one of them should be held accountable. Um, because it, it is a money driven business and they have known, they have known since the inception of this of this drug how um, how awful it is, and they pushed it anyway. Um, and that's you know, yeah, that's it's that's just how it is. And um, and and it's really like it's I, I I think we don't quite understand the gravity of how it has impacted the medical industrial complex because. Um, you know, the, these doctors, many of them who are using themselves are also, you know, equally as, as responsible in this. And like, if, if we, if we think about, you know, removing all the doctors that, that let's say I deem as responsible through, through the lens that I'm looking at this, like there would be no doctors left. It's, it's, it's incredible. It, like it, it, and, and not, not, I say incredible, but not in a good way. It's, it's mortifying. It's, it's um, terrible. And, 
Wait, you mean there would be no doctors left, people that are not in, complicit in this yeah. kind of... Yeah, that is my, that's my thought on it, is like, you know, now, now, there, now there are physicians coming around offering alternatives, but like, many of them for years and years have taken have taken cutbacks and incentives from doctors and and participating in that practice is really awful um and you know it's it's unethical and it's hurting people it's killing people has there been any sort of collective either just statements or people coming out either from like i don't know things like uh the nurses union or just doctors themselves being like look like this is creating a crisis people are dying maybe we shouldn't be prescribing these opioids on such a mass scale you know i i don't i can't say for sure what i do know is that in the state of Colorado, you know certainly recently yes yes lots and lots of different groups um have been coming together states have been getting more funding from the feds um, to do, you know, research and things like that. And, and so, you know, now like there's a, um, a, a consortium, um, for like farm pharmaceutical or, um, I'm sorry, uh, opiate related, um, use in Colorado and, you know, they're putting together programs. There's all kinds of different task force. So yes, certainly there are groups of people who are now, you know, haven't come to Jesus moments about this and probably have been for a while. Um, and so I would say certainly like now, if you're not on board with this, it's kind of like, like get on board with this or get out of the field, I imagine. Um, but, and, and there are individual doctors that are, that are also equally as horrified. Um, and I talked to many of their patients Um, you know, it's like I, like I mentioned earlier, like, I think we're still sort of, we haven't fully grasped the weight of how this is impacting, you know, people on an, on an individual level, because like, you know, working with a a doctor who has been prescribing you this for forever, you've been taking your dose as, as, um, prescribed. And now all of a sudden, because of regulations, you know, doctors are cutting their patients off. So all these all these people who have been taking their meds like they should have for 10, 15, 20 years are going through withdrawals and don't identify as somebody with a substance use problem, but are going through withdrawals like, you know, because because their body's addicted and and like doctors don't know how to have conversations with their patients about it. And it's it's very frustrating for everyone involved. My confesses, I can't give my brother a clean syringe if he should get AIDS and die. It's just too bad. My senator says, I can't give my sister a clean syringe if she should get hepatitis and die. It's just too bad. The president says, I can't give my brother a clean syringe if he should get hepatitis and die. It's just too bad. The policeman says, I can't give my sister a clean syringe if she should get AIDS and die. It's just too bad. I can't supervise all like the things so much wiser than all the doctors put together. We say we can give away clean syringes. My city councilman says, it's not a problem. We're only going to spend millions on treatment that won't work for people who will die. By community and like to claim immunity on the basis of homophobia and a lack of medical facts. Hey, America, this needle you can sleep in with your children, with your daughters, with your sons, with your husband. We got a law, says you can't own a needle. 
said he was for shooting up All the politicians say You can't legalize exchange because That would be sending the wrong message Did you ever notice? On every billboard, in every magazine, in every corner store On every TV screen, let's just by taking breaths and alcohol And don't you know drugs are everywhere, drugs are everywhere, drugs are everywhere You can't stop it, criminalize and make a profitable insurance One company Drugs are everywhere, drugs are everywhere, drugs are everywhere You can't stop it, it's not a law enforcement issue Addiction doesn't You brought up, you know, seeing doctors, patients and stuff like that Can you talk a little bit about your work as a specialist? I'm just kind of curious, you know, what that entails And kind of like, uh you know, what the front lines are, so to speak, you know, in, in that profession? Yes, of course. Um, so I'm a peer support specialist, um, first and, um, a little background on peer support for folks who don't know peer support came out of, um, deinstitutionalization in the sixties and seventies. So basically when JFK wrote the, or passed the community mental health act, he deinstitutionalized, uh, you know, America, so to speak. So all of these um, mental health facilities, state-run facilities, asylums, opened their doors and basically kicked all of their patients out, or or patients had escaped prior to that. But and and these folks, they their families had written them off. They didn't know anybody. They you know were basically walking into a world and they had zero life skills. Couldn't open a bank account. You know, like things that we learned being a part of society. But at that time you know, people with mental illness um, or were people who just didn't subscribe to society's bullshit were institutionalized, locked away. The doors opened and so folks didn't have any support systems. So what they were doing was collecting in the woods outside of these asylums and collecting, coming together as communities of support, helping each other survive the world. And um, so, so peer support is really about... Um, using our own lived experience as our credential to be able to support another person who's struggling, meeting them where they're, where they're at. Um, you know, it's uh, like no hierarchy. It's mutual. It's voluntary. Um, you know, for, for me, I'm, I'm pretty like no cops, no pros, no 911 um, because of the way that the mental health and psychiatric um industrial complex has really like hurt many, many people, killed many, many people. Um, so it's, it's, you know, for people who, who don't feel safe working within the mental health system or people who are having trouble navigating the mental health system, um, those are the folks I support. Um, in addition to that, I'm also an opioid specialist, which means I have just like subject matter expertise and I, I work with a lot of People, I support a lot of people who are um, thinking about, um, you know, coming off opiates um, or they are coming off opiates and need help or, you know, want to connect a loved one to support. So it really it, like I, I do a lot of different things, but I help folks get connected and I support them in the moment. Um, and yeah, does that explain it or did I just complicate it more? No, that's great. Uh, well, just kind of going forward, I mean, how widespread would you say this crisis is? How large is it? I mean, is it even possible to kind of to make the make that uh, analysis? Um, I 
you know, I mean, there are different, so like there are different, lots of people are talking about it and there have been different numbers that have been thrown out. Um, but you know, I think like right at the beginning of this interview, when you mentioned that it's, you're more likely to die from an opioid overdose than a car crash. I think that speaks to how widespread it is. Um, it's it because pills are so, or has, have historically been so accessible. Um, so if you could find a doctor, you could find, um, a pill and, uh, you know, there certainly it's, you know, people, there, there are organizations doing rollbacks and, and things like that on the criteria in which a person can be prescribed, but the problem's already pretty, pretty widespread at this point. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's bad. Um, well, based on your own personal experience, uh, both on the job and through, you know, your personal life, what are some of the major things feeding this crisis? I mean, obviously we've talked about, you know, the role of corporations, but other people have brought up things, for instance, like, uh, people having jobs where they have repetitive motions. So they're getting like things like arthritis or just, you know, pain in their hands or their back earlier. So they need some sort of pain relief, uh, which is, you know, you know, pretty unnatural. Yeah. Um, I'm just curious, you know, so what are the things that are really feeding into this? Um, well, I would say that like, you know, doctors, doctors not being mindful of, of, um, of what they're prescribing is is definitely feeding the, the problem. Um, but in terms of people like not having access to resources and support, um, I think stigma is a major issue um, that's that's keeping people from from getting better. Um, uh, money is an issue, but again, I think that speaks to just like the lack of access. Um, in in Colorado, you know, we 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 voted on um, a, a piece of legislation that would have expanded Medicaid to cover sub- inpatient treatment for substance use and. Um, that's huge. And it's sitting on the governor's desk It like, like Hickenlooper didn't sign it and Polis hasn't signed it yet. And it's just like, Hey, that would really help a lot of people. And you're just sort of fucking off. Like <laughs> folks are dying out here. Um, I, I think, you know, if people, so like, so opioid overdose can be, um, can be reversed with Narcan. And so if, if people had more access to Narcan, I think that would help too, um, at, at preventing death. Um, and so I think like it's, it's a community issue. It's a family issue. It's a workplace issue. The criminalization of people who use substances, um, is absolutely ridiculous and not making people better. Um, so I think it's, it's multifaceted in that way. You, know, you brought up Narcan. I feel like, uh, you know, we've mentioned that on this show a couple of times. You just want to speak to what that is yeah. real quick. Yeah. So Narcan is like, is like the opioid antidote. So if you have, um, it will reverse it, um, an overdose because it will basically, um, so like the, the receptors in your brain that the opioid sits in, it basically Narcan goes in and paralyzes those receptors. So what we hear, the push, the pushback we hear from like different law enforcement agencies and whatever, or just like generally like ignorant people when it comes to this particular thing, this particular tool, it, we hear what, what we've heard is that 
there, you know, folks are like, well, it, it'll just encourage somebody to keep using. And like, I just want to debunk that right now, because what it does is it sends somebody immediately into withdrawal. So like, like sometimes people are pissed when you bring them back because they're in pain, they hurt. Um, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. Um, and, and then, you know, there's no support afterwards. So, um, in, in Colorado, we have, um, our librarians and I think bus drivers and a bunch of different people that work, you know, with, with the public, um, have sort of taken, um, a stance and in keeping Narcan on them always same with police. Um, but I know that, that, you know, there, there are some, there, there is some weird stigma around it, um, for some reason. And I don't quite understand that. Cause I think, um, you know, I don't know. It, it, it seems like a weird hill to die on. Uh, that one does. Um, I think everybody that, that interacts with, if you have somebody that you know, that uses opiates, you should have Narcan on you. If, um, if you work with the public, you should keep Narcan on you. Um, you know, if, like, it's just, it's a smart thing to do. It can save somebody's life. Um, that's sort of, yeah, I think that's, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk about, uh, what a possible autonomous community response would look like. But first I just want to ask, you know, from your view and, you know, and this is in general terms, just both where you're at, but also what you know about, uh, how the state is responding in general. I mean, how would you rate the, the state's response? I mean, is it, um, is there anything that it's doing right? Um, is it mostly just for show? Is it not enough? Uh, is it, you know, resources put in the wrong place? Like you said, criminalization. I mean, what would you, what would your analysis be on how the state has responded so far to the opioid crisis? So I think like that's, um, so this is like an answer that's also multifaceted in that, um, you know, the state's putting in money, right? And like, so Colorado specifically, so-called Colorado specifically is, um, we, you know, ha has a history of sort of being on the forefront of legalization when it comes to scheduled substances. So like with the marijuana stuff, um, you know, we legalized, it was a big deal. Um, and, and I would like to think that the, you know, I don't know, I'd like to think we could try and keep the momentum with that. Currently, um, we are waiting to, um, so the, the city of Denver has already passed. It's already passed. It's, it also needs to be signed by the mayor of Denver, um, to allow the country's first safe injection site in Denver. Um, and we are really, really pushing for that. Um, last week, the mayor walked back on his, um, support of that. And, uh, his response was that we don't know. He said some bullshit about us not knowing, you know, what the, what the right way to handle, um, substance use issues are. And, and it's a crock of shit, um, because Portugal is doing some amazing stuff right now and we ought to be looking at them. Um, but so I think like, the state could do way more. There needs to be more done. Um, and then the other, the, you know, some, the other thing that I think a lot of people don't talk about is like, we've got these like sort of unregulated, you know, sober treatment facilities or whatever. And like, nobody is showing their outcomes. There's no, um, 
they don't have anything to show for their programs. They're, you know, they're, they're bringing people in and keeping them until their insurance won't allow it anymore and then pushing them back out. And it's like just this nasty cycle. And like these treatment programs are not showing anything. They're not, they're not, they don't have any outcomes to show. Um, and that's problematic for me. I think that, um, if you're, you know, if, if you're, taking on the responsibility of helping people get well, you ought to be able to show data that your program works. And the fact that that is not a requirement um, is impacting people all throughout the country, not just in Colorado. Um, but I definitely think that that's, um, that's a huge, it's a huge issue. Um, so I think, and then, you know, law enforcement, it's, it's tough to say if they're making any strides towards changing attitudes about People who use substances, from where I stand, not much is changing, but there's a lot of marketing around, you know, changing attitudes and, and um, ideas about people who use substances. I just I just don't see it. So I think there's way more that the state could be doing. Um, and uh, it feels like they're just dragging their feet. Um. What do you think uh, the beginnings of, or maybe we've seen it, I don't know if there's any projects or any approaches that, that you would speak to. I know that there are people uh, within the anarchist autonomous movement that are beginning to do like workshops on Narcan and, you know, just the opioid crisis in general and things like that. What do you think, um, you know, a broad-based community on the ground response would look like or what could it look like? It, uh, obviously, it'd be multifaceted, but if there's any ideas that you have and you wanted to share. Yeah. So the harm reduction action center in Denver does a lot of really great, um, street outreach, which is the kind of outreach that where it, it is like, um, you know, doing needle exchanges and, and, um, they have a needle exchange, um, just like, like spot where you can go in and do rapid HIV testing and get all new, um, all new supplies. So like that's everything from needles to cotton and clean water, um, uh, hep C can, can live in water for up to 62 days. So, um, you know, having access to clean water is something that's like really important in terms of reducing, um, the risk of spreading HIV and, and hepatitis C. And that's really what harm reduction is, is it's, it's, people think that harm reduction is supposed to get people to stop using. And that's not actually what, harm reduction with the, what the goal of harm reduction is. Um, but in, in addition to having things like Narcan and, um, you know, safe places to inject, like that reduces people's risk of dying and gives, you know, one, it gives a person another opportunity to, to, um, try something different and, um, and get well. Um, but if people are out here dying, then they don't get another chance. So I think um, harm reduction does some really great trainings and street outreach um, for people who want to who want to know how to handle the tools and do the testing and and learn how to use Narcan and things like that. Um, Narcan isn't as difficult to use anymore um, because now they have um, a nose spray. It's a nasal spray. Before it was injectable, and so that required a little bit of um, training, but, uh, Narcan now you can buy over the counter and it's a spray and it's very easy to use. 
Um, but for folks wanting to do autonomous stuff, I say get trained through someone like, um, uh, if you know of an autonomous group that's already doing it, get getting trained through them or your local harm reduction, um, center. And then I think, you know, you can buy all of those supplies on like medical supply websites. Um, so if you wanted to start your own, um, and, and do your own street outreach, I think that's awesome. Um, obviously I think, you know, there's safety in numbers and, um, and doing street outreach is not for everybody, but there's lots of different things that, that can be done. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's pretty easy to get up with, um, different organizations that are already doing like on the ground work for the most part. Awesome. You kind of already touched on this, but, um, you know, I think a lot of people are probably somewhat aware of harm reduction strategies and things like needle exchange. Um, I know in a lot of cities, like needle exchange programs have been really helpful in reducing and bringing down the the amount of people being infected with like HIV or Hep C, mm-hmm. and also with removing uh, dirty needles like in public spaces and things like that. Um, and I'm just curious, uh, and again, I think you touched on this a lot already, but what can kind of like past harm reduction strategies and how can they inform uh, this crisis right now? Um, so I think that harm reduction, um, strategies are by, by design grassroots. And so, um, it's meant to be like, it's meant to be, you know, face to face and, um, collaborative. And I think holding on to those, um, those values is really important Um, and also like if, you know, if, if, if folks want to do, want to start doing harm reduction work in their communities, talk to people who have been impacted, who are in recovery, people who are currently using, find out what their needs are from, from them. Um, because otherwise it's, 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 it's going to backfire at some point is the reality of it. Um, you know, doing, doing, Doing this work seemed natural to me because I, you know, I have been on the other side of it. Um, And I think that that's what draws a lot of people into this is personal lived experience in one way or another. And so, um, you know, making sure that when making like collective decisions about centering the most marginalized voices and the people who are most directly impacted is um, a good start in, you know, all kinds of, of harm reduction work. Um, I feel like we kind of answered the question about Narcan already. Like, uh, well, let me ask this. Um, so it seems like maybe a, a real basic thing that people could do to kind of get started uh, is just, you know, maybe try to attend trainings uh, and then also um, get a hold of Narcan if they're if they're able to, how would people go about doing that? So, um, in Denver, you can contact harm reduction action center. Um, they do trainings periodically. They're the only organization I trust to send people to, to be honest, um, outside of Denver. I am not sure, but a quick Google search can probably yield some pretty, um, accurate results, um, for, for getting, for getting trained. Um, Narcan in the state of Colorado, you can buy it, um, at any pharmacy, Walgreens, Walmart, um, you know, any pharmacy you go to, uh, I think King Super, Safeway, all of them. 
um, will have it. It shouldn't be more than like 20 bucks. I want to say, um, I thought that that was a, I thought that that was, um, national, but now that I think about it, I'm not quite sure if it's that accessible in other States. So, um, again, I would reach out, um, if you want to get a hold of Narcan, I would reach out again to your local harm reduction, uh, center, um, to see what they say in terms of that. Awesome. Well, do you have any other thoughts? I mean, anything that we haven't covered yet already? Um, no, I don't think so. I'm just, um, I was really glad that you brought up, um, the opioid, you know, situation, um, in, in the, the last or a couple podcasts ago, um, because it's just, I feel like everybody's impacted and we're not, we're not doing enough to talk about it. Um, so Mm -hmm. I felt, you know, I was like super invigorated and I'm like, yes, they, they brought it up. Now we have like, now we can talk about it. Um, so I, I want to thank you for, for that, for allowing the space and, and time. Um, and then, you know, also like, um, I know it, it, I probably sound like a broken record, like a hopeless broken record. Um, but, but I'm not hopeless. I, you know, I think that I watch people, um, crawl out of, you know, dark spaces, um, in their addiction every day. And it's really, um, it's really powerful. And, and I think if, if as a community, instead of pushing people out, we like really work hard to pull people in, um, that that's, that's going to be the thing that really changes, um, whether or not someone has the possibility of getting well. So for sure. And like you said, I mean, this is a, a vast crisis that's hitting people. Um, you know, it's hitting a lot of communities that, you know, have been hit by globalization or deindustrialization where there's a lack of jobs or access to any sort of, you know, <laughs> advancement or careers or, you know, elevation out of poverty. I mean, you know, this is a, a, a huge crisis that's happening. And, um, you know, it's important that we talk about it and talk about how to address it. And, you know, like you said, not stigmatizing people, not pushing them away, but realizing these are people in our community that are literally dying. And, you know, we're like we said, when we started, we're facing a a crisis where, you know, people are dying at a higher rate than car accidents, which is I mean, it's incredible and it's sick and it's sad. Yep, it is. It is. And actually, I do have I do have one other thought now that I think about it. So we talked about um, a little bit about the. well, I guess we we maybe really didn't talk about treatment necessarily, but I do want to say that there are some different methods of treatment that are out there. So like there's abstinence-based treatment, which is like full-blown sobriety. Um, and that's, you know, that works for some people, but there's also medication-assisted treatment, which is methadone and suboxone and Vivitrol. Um, and these are all medications that can help people manage withdrawal symptoms so that they can like go to work and like take care of their kids and things like that. So like there are options out there and it can be very frustrating and hard when you're in a space of like, okay, I'm ready to get clean. Now what do I do um, to, to, you know, navigate some of that um, reach out and, 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 and talk to somebody, call a crisis line, um, have someone walk you through that. If you can, if you can find someone, cause it's much easier with someone helping. Hey, really want to thank you for taking the time to not only, you know, reach out to us, but also talk to us. Uh, it's been, you know, as, as difficult as this conversation is and, you know, as, 
as a you know as much as it hits uh, to so many people's lived experiences, you know it's great that that we're having this conversation and we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and you know work through all your thoughts and your lived experiences. Thank you so much for having me. I so appreciate it. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.